Rachel. Hi, Walls. Welcome to I Have a Question. With Rachel and Walls. A show where we check in, ask each other a question about anything and everything, and drop a hot wreck. Let's get started. Today we're going to be talking again about current events. Uh, we're entering the second week of nationwide, worldwide, actually, yeah. protests in response to the killings of of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. So we just wanted to talk a little bit more about all of that. Yeah. How have you been doing in the past week, Wells? The past week has almost felt like a relief that people are upset, that the burden of pain and anger is no longer only falling on the shoulders of Black people and people of color, that finally, like, this is the most, the largest number of white people I've ever seen actually be upset by this. Yeah. And it feels like real change is possible. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Minneapolis City Council is actively considering dismantling their police force, which yeah. is an astonishing... Like, if you had asked me a month ago if that was a possibility ever possible in the United States... I would have said no, unequivocally. Yeah. And I feel really heartened by the mass efforts to make this movement intersectional and to let it transform every element of our world, that it is happening on Instagram. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There's a hashtag, Amplify Melanated Voices, that... I'm like, of course we should be doing this. And what it means is that white content creators, several, many, I don't know exactly how many, but took the week off from sharing and producing their own content, even stuff about what they were learning, and instead were just amplifying black and brown voices by directly sharing um, what they're making because they're the people who know the most about what it's like to experience racism so that and then in my own neighborhood uh my state senator robert jackson organized a march to repeal 50a which Mm -hmm. in new york state allowed police to hide the violence that was used against civilians and what the consequences were for those police officers. So basically, yeah, it their meant disciplinary records were confidential, hidden. basically. Yeah. So that there was no public record so that you could find out and track and make sure that the system was working the way we would like it to. I was almost going to say the way it was meant to, but then I remembered that, no, the mm-hmm. system was developed to be racist, and that is part yeah. of the issue. We have an exciting update for you. Actually, just a couple of hours after Walls and I recorded this episode, the New York State Legislature repealed 50A. So that law is no longer on the books, thank goodness, and now we can hold cops more accountable because we have access to their disciplinary records. So, positive update for you. And now back to the rest of the episode. So this March, um, everyone wore masks. We weren't able to keep six feet of distance the whole time, but I've been closer to people in my grocery store, you know? 
Yeah. So it was just, it was really, really invigorating and powerful and all ages were participating. We paused in front of the 34th police precinct and Mm. everyone took a knee and everyone was silent for a minute. We had been making so much noise for an hour and then to watch everyone, you know, it's like, it's, of course you can choose to change your behavior. Like it was just a small moment of being like, oh, we can choose to do this because this is what the moment calls for. Yeah, it just, it really reminded me about the power of local government, which was not Mm -hmm. something I really, I paid no attention to it, at least until college. Really, it didn't happen until after that. But at the end of the march, Senator Jackson spoke along with about, between six and eight other community leaders and legislators. And as my boyfriend noted, it felt really great to end a protest with our elected officials saying, thank you for holding us accountable. Tomorrow we're going to repeal 50A. Tomorrow we're going to ban the chokehold, even though it goes against the police union. (laughs) I would like to note, however, that the chokehold has been banned in New York City since, I think, 1991, 1993, something like that. What? Yeah, it's been banned for a very long time. But that that was meaningless because cops still used it. Oh, my God. <laughs> and there's no accountability. But that's that's a huge reason why these protests are happening. Yes. I live in a neighborhood that has a predominantly Dominican Republican population. And that's been a really sort of just enlightening and interesting dynamic to watch because there is a lot of internalized systemic racism in the Dominican community against Black people. And watching my neighborhood both online and like community Facebook groups and then just literally in person try to work through it, I I think is just really powerful. And like every group trying to work through trying to work on becoming anti-racist that you know there have been some mistakes along the way but more than anything i do see uh positive changes occurring and art being made and just more again more people talking about it because when you normalize accepting that everyone is racist because we live in a racist world that's when you're able to start changing yeah i that idea that everyone is racist Ibram Kendi, Mm -hmm. who wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist, which is one of the books we recommended last week, he did, I guess, an interview, a conversation. He had a conversation with Brene Brown, Mm -hmm. who you might know from her TED Talks on the importance of vulnerability. And he said that if you are born in the United States, you cannot escape racism. It's, It's, you cannot escape being racist. It's like, rain it's like standing in the rain and you are drenched in racism Mm -hmm. to the point where you don't even think about the fact that you're drenched in it It, you just kind of ignore it and then when somebody says points out oh hey did you notice that you're totally drenched in racism you can either say no i'm not (laughs) or you can say oh my goodness you're right and if they say yeah here's an umbrella you can either say, no, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep getting wet. I'm going to keep being drenched. 
Or you can say, thank you, it's so embarrassing that I didn't already bring my own umbrella, but I'll take your umbrella and maybe start to dry off a little bit. Thank you. Wow. And I thought that was a really... Um, apt. Really interesting, yeah, apt description of what it's like to be born in the United States or raised and live in the United States. You are, it's, you're permeated mm-hmm. by racism. You cannot not be racist. Until you choose to work against it. And we will, I don't know in our lifetime that we will be able to change every system. But yeah, like there, there are things you can do to stop getting wet. You can take that umbrella and say, thank Mm -hmm. you. That's, that is really neat. And one thing that I liked about it too, is like the embarrassment of like, oh my gosh, I've been getting wet this whole time and I could have had an umbrella Finding out and confronting the racism that you hold in yourself is embarrassing. Yes. It's deeply embarrassing and it's scary and it it it's kind of humiliating to be like, oh my God, yeah, I'm caught in a downpour without an umbrella. How stupid am I? Yeah. And now somebody's pointing out that I don't have an umbrella to keep me dry. And it's like, yeah, you can you can shut down the embarrassment and not deal with it. You can block out the fear and pretend that you're just fine staying drenched in racism, or you can have a little humility, accept being embarrassed about the racism that you hold, and live with that embarrassment and that fear. And also, like, if you're drenched in racism, you might never get totally dry. Yes, that's what I... Your clothes might stay Mm -hmm. damp. You can... You probably won't get totally dry. Like, you can do all the reading... You can do all the research. You can listen, listen, listen. You can be the best ally that you're capable of being. And you're still probably going to have little moments where you slip up. Mm -hmm. If you dry off, you know, your shoulder starts to dry off because it's covered by the umbrella. But then the wind comes and whoosh, there goes the rain and it still gets your shoulder. Like, even after you dry off a patch... You might have to go back and look again. Or you accidentally step in a puddle yeah. and your shoes get wet again. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, it's a constant... Thank you, Ibram Kendi, for this yeah. for this metaphor. Um, it's a constant... You can dry off a little bit, but yeah, exactly. You might get splashed again. The, the wind might change and get you wet again. And then you just have to go, okay, I'm wet again. Mm-hmm. I need to do my best to dry off again. Yeah. It reminds me, we talked about this before we started recording, but of something I've been seeing going around that we have to fight our racism the way people are taught to fight addiction. That it's daily work. Honestly, it's like the way you work on a relationship with someone you love, too. You have to wake up and choose each day to do the work because so much of it is ingrained into our beliefs and choosing to be racist is not having a racist thought it's having a racist thought and not then having a second thought that questions that first Mm -hmm. thought so when you have those thoughts it's okay don't shy them away they're going to help you figure it out i mean that's a thing that i ask myself if i'm out for a run or walking alone and suddenly you know there's a person coming down the street and it took me a while to say oh okay I, their race might not actually tell me anything about whether or not they're a threat to me. In fact, it mm-hmm. probably doesn't. Mm-hmm. But that was a thing I had to 
retrain my brain around because before that I had been taught just through like almost osmosis of media that black men were going to hurt me but that's not true it's much more likely actually that I will hurt them yeah so hello Amy Cooper yeah recognizing apparently got her dog back somehow no yeah what like that that is whiteness right there that is white privilege right there amy cooper we all saw the video where she's basically strangling this dog and her dog got taken away from her it got well a week later it was given back the dog went back to the rescue that she adopted it from but they gave it back gave it back god that's that's another that's another thing i saw this week was like For all of the white people who love supporting animal rescues, who will do anything Mm -hmm. to sit, you know, like that is really, that is, as a friend of mine says, that is God's work caring for animals. You know, like that is really intense daily work. If all of those people who are ready to save an animal could be ready to fight against racism... (laughs) Like, yeah, we would be in amazing shape. <laughs> like, if you watched that video of Amy Cooper and you were more concerned for the dog she was strangling than the man whose life she was threatening, you might want to examine yeah. that and examine your priorities of compassion and empathy. Exactly. Well, and also that, like, you're able to feel immense compassion for that dog. So it means that you are able to feel that much compassion for many things, including humans. Yes. Yeah. I think the other thing that this past week, like a big shift that I've noticed for myself, is that in the past, when people are having dialogues about racism or (laughs) Facebook chats about them, there, of course, there's a point where a Facebook conversation is just not worth your time. Yeah, sometimes you just need to step away. But I'm trying to use that compassion and patience that I know I have like when working with children. <laughs> um, <laughs> that says that a lot, sounds but bad. There you go. But, yeah. But no, it doesn't sound bad. It sounds real. I mention it with children because children are so used to learning new skills that they're constantly in an environment where you're talking to them in a certain way. But adults are not used to being bad at things because we're not used to learning things for the first time. After 2016, I really just felt like burn all the bridges that are not working towards the goals that I'm working towards of intersectional feminism. And I think in the past four years, what I've learned is like, we still, we might not need them inherently right now. Or not inherently, but we might not need them right this moment. But our world will be so much better if we do have more of those bridges. And so trying to meet people who might not be quite there yet. They might still be saying all lives matter. Or they might, but they might say black lives matter. You know, like, they're not, we're not at the same place on our journey. But they're still going to be really important allies. So I'm trying to spend more time being compassionate and if they're wanting to have a conversation serving the movement in that way and i think that that's an important thing for white people in particular to do and to take on is having those conversations with people who aren't 
necessarily on board yet because so often we expect black people, people of color, indigenous people to educate us, to have those conversations with us. And that's huge emotional labor. That's mm-hmm. a huge amount of exhaustion for people of color to do that again and again and again mm-hmm. with every fucking white person they meet. And so as a white person, I can decide, you know what? I'm going to talk to the other white people in my life about this so that a person of color, a black person, an indigenous person does not need to have this conversation for the thousandth right. time. And yeah, it makes me super uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But how lucky am I that the only thing... That it's a choice. That it's a choice and that I... <laughs> how amazing. This is the core of, of white fragility is that I only have to think about race when I want to. Yeah, That's white supremacy. If I was black, I wouldn't have a choice about whether I wanted to think about race and when. Society, every person around me, the structure of the culture I lived in would constantly be making me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But as a white person, I get to choose when I want to be uncomfortable and when I stop being Mm -hmm. uncomfortable. When I remove myself from the situation and I'm like, all right, well, that's enough discomfort for today. Back to my life, my life that is not impacted by something beyond my control. So that's something that I can do as a white person is I can talk to those people in my life who are open, but not there yet. Mm -hmm. And part of that is also, whenever possible, directing them to black educators whose work they can pay for or often view for free, but so that they start to learn from people who don't look like them too yes i think that oftentimes for somebody who's like really not far along the path having a a white ambassador to make them comfortable starting that journey can be really useful use that white privilege manipulate it but i mean it's i've seen growth in people in my own life of just how they thought about police violence six, seven years ago to now. Mm-hmm. So growth is possible and it requires having uncomfortable conversations with people you love mm-hmm. and being really patient and not giving up on them. Yeah. And as a white person, I have the luxury to be patient and not give up on them. Exactly. Black people, people of color, indigenous folks are completely, completely justified in saying you know what i'm done i'm not teaching Mm -hmm. another white person yeah they're completely justified in saying that's enough i'm done but as a white person i have the luxury to have patience and and give people second chances right yeah and a second chance is like the ultimate benefit of white privilege oh yeah in in every facet infinite second chances yeah i mean a hundredth chances but you know the the idea of a second chance when we talk about wanting to give people a second chance that just needs to be available to everyone i think and i think that's something part of what's so scary as a white person to talk about race for me is knowing that sometimes i'm gonna get it wrong Mm -hmm. sometimes i'm gonna get it so wrong that I might burn a whole relationship Mm. and lose that person's respect forever. And I might never regain that person's respect. And that's scary. Mm -hmm. 
on so many levels that's scary. So as a white person, I'm accustomed to always getting a second chance. But, you know, in your life, I think part of what feels so scary as a white person for me talking about race is sometimes, and this has happened to me in my life, I wasn't given a second chance when I fucked up Mm -hmm. about race and I hurt someone. And it shook my whole fucking world. But I realized that why it shook me to my core is like, this is the first time somebody didn't give me the benefit of the doubt. Somebody didn't give me a second chance because I was so used to the entitlement yeah, Yeah. of being allowed to fuck up and then still living my life. But this person said, no, you fucked up and that's it. You're out. And it took a long time to accept that. Mm -hmm. And it was painful and it was scary. But like, I think part of, of relinquishing white privilege and white supremacy is accepting, oh, getting infinite second chances isn't normal. Mm -mm. This isn't neutral. This was like a luxury Mm -hmm. that I took for granted. We could rebuild a world where everyone gets that second chance, but Mm -hmm. we don't have that right now. And who said it? I will make sure to credit it in the show notes. But um, there's the statement that when, we, when you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a big lesson to learn. And to not have to experience it until you're an adolescent or an adult. Like, yeah, what a privilege. <laughs> to never be forced to interrogate the foundations of your life. Mm-hmm. To never be forced to interrogate the foundations of the country you live in. Yeah. I think that's, for me, in addition to protesting and everything like that and and donating money where I can, a lot of a personal call to action that I've demanded of myself is to interrogate my own relationship to whiteness more. Mm -hmm. Um, Because this movement isn't just about honoring black people. It's not just about protecting and valuing the lives of black people. It's also saying, okay, now that we finally acknowledge that Black Lives Matter, we cannot go forward in this same system. Mm -hmm. We have to change this system. And to change the system, I have to also change myself. I have to acknowledge that I am also a product of white supremacy. Yes. So my, my challenge to myself is not only do Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter And I have to work on my own whiteness and dismantling how in my own life I weaponize it, often inadvertently. Mm -hmm. There's um, a video on Instagram that we'll share from Sonia Renee Taylor that got a lot of traction this week. And she talks about how if you're still having a conversation at the dinner table trying to prove that Black Lives Matter we're past that time if the people around you refuse to believe that like they might be too far gone but the conversation that actually needs to happen is about the danger of white supremacy and how we have white privilege and that we need to turn the conversation back around to us and stop talking so much about proving or them or like that it's on us now. What's wrong within me? Yes. What allows me to think 
that I could even sit at a table and debate whether or not somebody's life has worth and merit and value. Yeah. So we'll link to that. It is, it, it was so clarifying for me. I think she said, I saw it too. And I think she said something like, um, how bereft are you? Mm. If that's what you're talking about, how bereft is your soul? Mm-hmm. How small, how little is your soul? If you're actually debating whether a human being deserves to live. White supremacy doesn't just harm black people. It doesn't just harm brown people. It doesn't just harm oppressed people. White supremacy also harms white people. It destroys, it kills a part of your soul. soul. Yeah, it's a horcrux. White supremacy is, it's like a drug. It makes you feel good, so you want to keep using it. You don't want to go through the withdrawal symptoms if you give it up. But God, how much better your life would be without it. It's an, it's an addiction. addiction. There we are again. <laughs> yeah, and we have to treat it like one. Yeah. But it it does feel sometimes like a punishment right now. And then you remind yourself. It's a constant battle of checking yourself and going, ah, yeah, well, guess what? I didn't get everything I ever wanted. <laughs> yeah. And also... The whole time, you were totally safe. Like, your life was never at risk. It's not personal, either. It's not about me. Yeah, it's about changing a system. What feels like a big old bummer to me is actually still I'm sitting at the top of the privilege pyramid. Yeah, that's very real. But I can't imagine how fed up my colleagues of color Mm. have been every waking moment of their lives i'm just experiencing it for the first time in my life Mm -hmm. i can't even imagine what it took them to even get to where they are yeah that brings me to a recommendation for this week that so i've added some podcasts that you can listen to from black hosts and creators onto our instagram there's a little highlight and you can see and we'll keep updating that as we find more uh but one of them is from the New York Times Magazine called 1619. Mm, And it came mm -hmm. out a few years ago. I believe it's six... No, just this fall. Was it just 2019? I thought it was 2018. It feels feels like a few years ago, but that's the world. (laughs) Oh, wow. Under this fucking (laughs) jackass of a president, that's the world. Also, like, remember Murder Hornets? Okay. (laughs) 2020. (laughs) (laughs) So it came out... In the fall. That's great. And I think it's six episodes if you're listening on a podcast app. So it helped me remember that African slaves were brought to the country 400 years ago. And that only for the last 50 years has there been any, not even real, but any ounce of true opportunity available to them because of legislation and then cultural norms that were insistent on oppressing them and that like the black community is so vibrant and strong and the fact again that like they have made it and survived these atrocities is incredible to survive such a long amount of time but then to also like find ways to thrive and to keep climbing and just like 50 years. Yeah. But anyway, recommendation for the week is definitely to listen to 1619. 
each episode focuses on a different piece of culture or piece of history for black people in America. And I, I just can't recommend it enough. Yeah. What you said made me think of, um, there's another video that's been circulating. I don't know this woman's name. I will look it up afterwards. Her name is Kimberly Latrice Jones. She's the author of a book called I'm Not Dying With You Tonight. We've linked a video of her speaking in the show notes. You should really take a look at it. It's amazing. She does an incredible job of explaining what Walls was just talking about of the 400 years of slavery and only 50 years to build up wealth. Check it out. Kimberly Latrice Jones. She has this really wonderful powerful speech and she ends it with and y'all are lucky that black people are just looking for equality and not revenge that's real too and they have every right to seek revenge Mm -hmm. 400 years of slavery and only 50 or so years of half-assed opportunity right white people yeah we are fucking lucky that black people are just looking for equality and not revenge yes um, my recommendation is to not just say to yourself, oh, yeah, I should have a conversation about race with my family or with this friend or with this person, but actually do it. Mm-hmm. My recommendation is to get on your phone or schedule a Zoom call and actually have that conversation because it's easy to say, oh, we need to talk. We need to have more conversations. But having them is fucking hard. Because racism is trauma Mm -hmm. for everyone involved. Racism is generational trauma passed down for hundreds and hundreds of years. So, of course, having a conversation about it is daunting. Mm -hmm. You've got hundreds of years of trauma. Yeah, but that's the work. That is literally how you save people's lives. Yeah. All right, folks, thank you so much for listening. The work is never, ever, ever done. But we appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thanks everybody for listening. If you want to send us a question or send us a recommendation, by all means, please do. Our email is withrachelandwalls at gmail.com. We will put many links in the show notes. And you can reach us also on Twitter at Rachel and Walls and on Instagram at withrachelandwalls. Yes, and we really would love to hear from you, especially about this, because like I was just saying, we have to have these conversations. So we would love to have some conversations with you, our listeners. But in the meantime, thank you for listening. This show is produced by us, Rachel Kenny and Walls Trimble. Our music is composed and performed by the wonderful Royer Bacchus. And always remember, a stranger on the internet believes in you. Bye.